0: to start off today with a question. What is true greatness? What is true greatness? Is it uh, winning the chili and cornbread (laughs) (laughs) cook-off? No. No, it it is an important question though because you've probably heard the same idea I have out there. One of the most tragic things in the world is to get to the top of the ladder and then realize your ladder's been leaning against the wrong wall. That happens when we define what greatness is wrongly. What is true greatness? That's what today's passage in Matthew 20 starting at verse 17 is all about. But before we dive right in, we gotta revisit the context, Matthew nineteen thirty, Jesus had said, many are first will be last, and the last first. And then in 2016, he said, so the last will be first, and the first last. Now on their own, you may look at those and say, what in the world does that mean, right? We well, you look at the context, you look where we've been. Before the first statement, we saw there are gonna be surprises, as to who gets in the kingdom. As we looked at the children and the, the rich young ruler, Matthew 19:14, Jesus said, "Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Mark made it more plain in 10:15, "Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it." In between the two statements, we see there's gonna be surprises as to who gets what rewards in the kingdom. You remember the parable last week, 21 through 16. The people who started working at the 11th hour got the same at the end of the day as those who started early. In Matthew nineteen fifteen, the master said, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And today, after the second statement in our passage, we're going to see there's surprises as to who is truly great. Who is truly great in the kingdom? Matthew 20, verse 26, Jesus said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And at the beginning of our passage in verse 17, we're going to start with the ultimate last in the eyes of this world. Who would be first, highly exalted above all, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. So I invite you to look at Matthew 20, 17, at the preeminent example of selfless love. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. I see a couple things in our Savior in this passage. Number one, I see boldness. You see it said as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He's walking toward all this for you, for me. I see his omniscience. He knows what's coming. Look at the specificity of it. Delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. How would that happen? Judas, right? Delivered over to Gentiles. We know he would be taken to Pilate, right? He knew that. Specific form of punishment, even mocked, flogged, and crucified. A death reserved by Rome for only the worst of the worst. He knew all of that. You also see his omnipotence spoken of. He says at the end, he will be raised on the third day. And of course, you see his selfless love for those 12 and all of us. What did he say in John 15, 13? Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What a statement. How moving is that? You might say, how would the disciples respond to this? Would they respond with with deep sorrow for the coming of their master? Would they respond with quiet awe of the resurrection that's coming? Would they respond with worship and gratitude? None of that is recorded. And Luke helps us understand somewhat. He says they did not understand what he was saying, but I'll tell you what is recorded. Right after that, two of them come with their mom seeking the best seats in the kingdom. We we shift from selfless love to selfish ambition, just like that. Two of the guys, John and James, asking for a special seat in the kingdom. Verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with their sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, Mark indicates it was them asking as well, but maybe they figured, hey, maybe mom can, you know, work it for us. Maybe mom thought, hey, I could could talk to him about that. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. The best seats, right? Now, there's two sides here. On the one hand, you could admire their faith, right? There, there's no outward signs of a kingdom right now with them and Jesus, so they at least trust what he had told them in Matthew 19:28. Truly, I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, at least they believed what he had said, but what's going on? They, they were skipping over something. There would be thrones and crowns, but first they were headed for a cup. Verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What cup is he speaking of? You know, a cup of suffering that is coming. They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. And they may not have understood it in this moment, but these two guys would understand the other side of the resurrection, the other side of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Faithful James, Acts 12, is about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. You think about John, there are some unconfirmed traditions that he was boiled in oil and survived as an elderly man, if, if that is true, think of the strength in Christ that old bird must have had. Wow. What we do know is from the book of Revelation chapter one, verse nine, when he received that revelation, he says, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. My family and I, growing up, we went to a camp called Patmos that was on an island in Lake Erie. That was wonderful. They had speedboats and water skiing. They had a swimming pool. I don't think it's the same island, Scott. Keith got it. Keith said, I don't think this is the same island, and it was not. It was an island in the Aegean Sea, not far from Ephesus, where John ended up ministering. It was where Rome sent many of their political prisoners into exile. Many of them worked the mines and the quarries there. It's where John was on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. They would would know this cup that Jesus spoke of. Jesus goes on back in Matthew. He says, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. I'd like to paraphrase what he's saying. There is that's gonna be decided by my father, not granted as a personal favor to your mommy. So we go from selfless love to selfish ambition and now Jesus is going to define for us what true greatness is. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They heard what John and James were trying to horn in on and they were mad. Now I don't know what your favorite hobby is. What are what's some of your favorite hobbies? Shout them out. Kayaking. Kayaking? Being a musician, I hear a lot of them hiking, reading, painting. I don't know what it is. For these guys, that side of the cross, I think their favorite hobby was arguing about which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. It was like a nonstop game of king of the mountain. They would understand the other side of the cross and resurrection. But before, that was one of their favorite things. We see this in Mark right after a a previous prediction of the cross. Mark 9 31 says he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Again, in the same context, from selfless love of Christ to the selfish ambition of these men. These guys may be mad they didn't think of it before John and James, right? Why didn't we send our mom in there? Verse 25, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew they needed that. He knew they were struggling to understand what you and I sometimes struggle to understand as well. The kingdom and the cross are not opposites of of one another. The cross is part of the kingdom path. There will be difficulty on the way to dominion. Sovereignty and serving, sovereignty and suffering go hand in hand. In fact, Jesus himself would live out what he said back in 1930, many who are first will be last and the last first. And they needed to follow his example. We all know John 3.16. I like what William Hendrickson said. He said, the follower of Christ that knows John 3.16 should also know 1 John 3.16. You know what it says? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. As Jesus put it in John 13.14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now I step back from this passage in Matthew to a whole Bible perspective. And I think about some this lesson in a powerful way. Think about pompous, power hungry Saul of Tarsus. You know what we read about him in Acts? Acts 8.3 says he was ravaging the church Entering house after house, he, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9, one says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Many of us know what was going on in Acts chapter 9, right? He's, he's heading to Damascus. And his pompous power to, to capture more Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem as, as prisoners or worse. But Acts 9.3 says, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he got the shock of his life. He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And I think about mighty Saul storming toward Damascus, now humbled on the ground. He can't even see. He must be led humbly by the hand. And I think about his pride before this. He hinted at it in the book of Philippians Right, Philippians 3, 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Listen to his humility after Christ. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Then think about the ways he describes himself in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. First Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14.1, this is how one should regard us as, as servants of, of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.19, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. What a transformation, right? The, the persecutor of, of Christ and his church would become servant of Christ and his church, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, the way up is down. And I think one of the places we see his servant heart most clearly is in his relationship to the church at Corinth. In his old rage, I think he would have burned that church down many times over because they were messed up. That was a messed up church if you ever read those letters. But this new servant in Christ, you know what? He loved them. He served them and and he persevered with them. So I wanna use some selections from 2 Corinthians where we see his heart as a servant of Christ for this church to launch us into a couple short seasons of where you talk to the Father about this matter. I think one of the best ways to energize our prayer lives is to take God's word and transform it into our prayer. As we do that, we're gonna start by talking about the heart of a servant that Paul had towards that church. The heart of a servant, and you know what that is? That's a mindset we must choose. We must choose to have the heart of a servant. I wanna show you three short passages where this is modeled. And then I'll invite you into a short time of prayer about it. Number one, humility. Heart of a servant gives God the glory. Look at how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 10. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Humility is key in the heart of a servant. Second one, sacrifice. When we choose to spend our lives for others, the power of God is unleashed. We saw it in Christ, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Sacrifice, and the third and final one, the heart of a servant, selflessness. If we're selfless toward the people God has put in our path, It enables gratitude in our lives, even when we're weak. So long as God uses that weakness to strengthen others, look how he puts it. We are glad when we are weak. When the last time you said that, the last time I said that, we're glad when we are weak. Why? And you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. You see that selflessness? I want you to spend just a couple moments talking to the Father about that. I put a, a, this is just a suggested place to start. Father, please help me walk in humility. Forgive the ways I seek to commend and advance myself. Help me bring glory to you by sacrificing for those around me. By your spirit, please help me walk with the selfless mindset of your son who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Take a few minutes and pray about the heart of a servant. Our second prayer time where I want to lead us is the path of a a servant, Uh, specifically the struggles we must face in this world. We're we're pilgrims in a strange land. And in many ways, following Christ is a difficult road. And I share this one with a heart of mercy because I know sometimes when we find ourselves in those difficult spots, we may start to wonder things, does God love me? Can he? And the answer to both is yes. Yes, in in fact, what I'm gonna show you from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it's sometimes those very difficulties that God does use as we submit them to him. I wanna start by talking about the outward struggles. We're gonna go to the next slide there first two are related. Affliction. Some of you facing some affliction right now. Paul's letter reminds us that God's comfort in our affliction helps us comfort others. Second Corinthians 1, he says to that church, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Before we go on, the way one Christian artist explained that briefly, he said, let them see your scars. Often it's our scars that God works through to minister in the lives of others. Second, suffering. Some people suffering in this room. Listen, union with Christ and his suffering and death enables his resurrection life to shine through us. This may be one of your favorite passages in 2 Corinthians. I know it is mine. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure of Christ in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And final one, number three, aging. Every every day we grow older. But even that can help us set our focus on eternal glory and inner renewal. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I wanna lead you into a time of prayer about those outward struggles, and here's a suggestion to begin. Father, I confess that sometimes when I suffer, I lose focus. Help me remember you can use what I'm going through to encourage someone else. Help me remember our savior who walked the way of suffering to the cross for our great benefit. May the power of his mighty resurrection life shine through this jar of clay so others see him. Help me remember as my body ages and hurts, the pain is temporary. Eternal glory is coming. May your spirit use that truth to bring me inner renewal even today. This is your time to pray. For our final time of prayer, I want to bring us to the inward, inward struggles of a servant. The first one is despair. There may be someone sitting here this morning facing despair. Paul would remind us that despair can make us rely on God The way to turn it around is take it to the Lord. It can be the very thing that drives us to rely on God. The second one, insufficiency. How many of you regularly come to moments in your life like me where in and of yourself you feel insufficient? That can point us to his all-sufficiency. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. And the final one, weakness. If there's anyone sitting here this morning feeling weak, that's the very thing that can help us find our strength in Christ. Many of you know this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse seven. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. It was causing him suffering. He's saying, Lord, take this away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As you enter this final time of prayer, may I suggest this as a starting point. Father, sometimes I do despair. The enemy has whispered in my ear more than once to give up. But you are a God who raises the dead. Instead of throwing in the towel, help me rely on you. I will not deny my insufficiency on my own, but I believe you are more than enough. On my own, I am weak. There, I said it. Now, please... Make your power perfect in my weakness. Please help me by the power of Christ within to glorify you and serve others until I reach my finish line. This is your time with the Father. Father, we thank you so very much for the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We look at the trials on those lists we just put up there and the fact is we all face trials. The the only real question we have is do we face them alone or do we face them with Christ? I pray if any in this room have not yet accepted this, the son of man who gave his life as a ransom for theirs that you draw them to the cross. Help them know Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They could embrace him and trust this morning for the forgiveness of their sins and new life and, and walk out of here following the king of true greatness and being one of his servants and serving those around them, even as they walk through their trials. I pray for those in this room who who do follow the king who gave his life. Some of these areas are heavy, despair, suffering, weakness. Holy Spirit, may, may you please minister to them right at their point of need this morning. Encourage them and continue to use them. Let them know you're not done using them to serve you and those around them because it's in our weakness, you are strong. I pray as we take our offering this morning, you would help us as a church to use it for your glory and the good of your kingdom, to spread word of this King, who came to serve and to lay down his life. In Jesus' name, amen.